Peace be upon you. So in 1929, Edwin Hubble made an observation. What he saw was that the galaxies that were further away from planet Earth were traveling at proportionally faster speeds than the galaxies that were closer to planet Earth. And when he ran the numbers backwards, in essence, turning the clock back in time, what he extrapolated was that at one point, roughly 13.8 billion years ago, that all matter was at one singularity, and this is known as the Big Bang. And this is confirmed in the Quran. In Surah 21, verse 30, it reads, Do the unbelievers not realize that the heaven and the earth used to be one solid mass that we exploded into existence? Now, here is a book written 1,400 years ago in the dark ages of Arabia telling us something that relatively in modern history we're able to confirm. But even when this was confirmed that we the Big Bang did happen, the predominant belief held by most astronomers, most scientists, even that of Einstein, was that we lived in a static universe that had no beginning. And again, we read in the Quran in Surah 51, verse 47, it says, We constructed the sky with our hands and we will continue to expand it. Now, how is it possible that this book, again, written 1400 years ago in the dark ages of Arabia, had this level of scientific understanding? And by no means is the Quran a science book, but it contains scientific proofs for us to take heed that this book was not written by some random individual in Arabia, that this was divine inspiration provided to him by God to disseminate this to the masses, that this did not come out of the prophet's own mind, that this was the word of God transcribed by his own hand for us to learn from. Now, up to this point, it seems like the scientific understanding matches the verses in the Quran. But there's one that comes out that appears to contradict this. And this is in Surah 2, verse 29. It reads, He is the one who created for you everything on earth, then turned to the sky and perfected seven universes therein. And he is fully aware of all things. From this verse, it sounds like God created the earth first, then turned to the sky and perfected seven universes, which appears to contradict modern scientific understanding. So how do we reconcile this? The best way I can describe this is if you were a chemist and you wanted to create the conditions for a specific outcome in order to produce a certain molecule or a certain compound, would you first determine the conditions or would you determine what is it the outcome you want to achieve? And obviously, a chemist is going to determine what is the outcome they want to achieve then they're going to create the conditions by which to bring that outcome to fruition. And this is what God is informing us in Surah 2, verse 29. And the proof of this comes in Surah 41, verse 9 through 12. And I'm going to start by reading verse 9. It says, Say, you disbelieve in the one who created the earth in two days, and you set up idols to rank with him, though he is Lord of the universe. He placed on it stabilizers, mountains, and made it productive, and he calculated its provisions in four days to satisfy the needs of all its inhabitants. So I'm going to pause there. This verse is informing us that God created the heavens and the earth in two days. 
What's interesting is when God says he created the heavens and the earth in two days, these are not days like we understand them. This is a theoretical yardstick for us to understand that the complexity of calculating the provisions for the inhabitants of earth is twice as complex as that of the physical manifestation of the heavens and the earth. And up until this point, this is strictly just the calculations. And I'll prove it with the following verse. Because in 41.9, it says, you disbelieve in the one who created the earth. And then we go to 41.11, it reads, then he turned to the sky when it was still gas and said to it and to the earth, come into existence willingly or unwillingly. They said, we come willingly. So it's informing us that God first determined what was the exact outcome he wanted to produce. What were the physical properties of planet earth that God wanted to bring to fruition? And once that was all determined, he went to the heavens and the earth and said, come into existence willingly or unwillingly. They said, we come willingly. So God first set the preconditions, determined what is the outcome he wanted to achieve. Then he hit play and took everything to fruition. Now, what is the significance of this? For millennia, there has been a debate regarding the purpose of this universe. One side argues that we are just a mere coincidental outcome of the Big Bang, that we serve no importance, no significance, and this is known as the biocentric view. The other view is the anthropocentric view, which believes that the universe was constructed specifically for the intention of mankind. So then rather than us being a byproduct of the universe, is that the universe was created in order to be able to support us. So the question is, are we the byproduct of a probabilistic events that transpired to create the universe? Or was the universe created with the intention of supporting mankind? God informs us in Surah 21, verse 16, it says, We did not create the heavens and the earth and everything between them just for amusement. If we needed amusement, we could have initiated without any of this if that is what we wanted to do. In Surah 44, verse 38, verse 39, says, We did not create the heavens and the earth and everything between them just to play. We created them for a specific purpose, but most of them do not know. So what is this purpose? that the heavens and the earth was created for? The answer is in Surah 45, verse 22. It says, God created the heavens and the earth for a specific purpose in order to pay each soul for whatever it earned without the least injustice. In Surah 11, verse 7, it reads, He is the one who created the heavens and the earth in six days, and his earthly domain was completely covered with water in order to test you and to distinguish those among you who work righteousness. Yet when you say you will be resurrected after death, those who disbelieve would say this is clearly witchcraft. So God is informing us that the purpose of the universe was to support and serve the human being, and not that we were just a mere coincidence or a byproduct of the creation of the universe. Now again, the Quran is not a science book, but it contains scientific facts. And the question is, based on that alone, do we have indication in this world, scientific proof, to show that we are not just a mere coincidence, but it's 
more probabilistic that, again, just by the science alone, that we are the intention of the universe, that the purpose of the planet Earth, the purpose of the laws of physics is to serve the human being. So in order to prove this, what we need to do is to show that not only are these conditions designed necessary for life, but that the conditions are set perfectly for the advancement of the human being. So let's start with the verse we already read about the Big Bang in Surah 21, verse 30. It says, Do the unbelievers not realize that the heaven and earth used to be one solid mass that we exploded into existence? And it says, And from water we made all living things. Would they believe? So let's start with this premise of water. It just happens that planet Earth supports water in all three forms. You have liquid, you have gas, and you have ice. And it just happens that water has its own condition by which it can purify itself. Again, these are the properties of water. That when it comes in contact with heat, it evaporates, it uh, purifies itself, and it gets carried over to land by which is necessary, and we're going to get into, to be able to sustain terrestrial life. Because obviously, human beings were terrestrial, we're not aquatic. There are certain conditions that are necessary, and this again would not happen if water didn't possess this quality. Almost 99% of the mass of the human body is made up of six elements. Oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus. Only about 0.85% is composed of another five elements. It's potassium, sulfur, sodium, chlorine, and magnesium. In total, there are about 33 elements that are necessary that composes of a human being. And it just happens that the earth contains all these elements. And not only those, there's about 90 plus elements that the earth naturally contains. Now, statistically, you can look at what is the probability of this outcome. Now, if any one of these elements was not present, we wouldn't have human beings. But what about these other elements that aren't necessary for life, but are absolutely essential for the advancement of life? Take something like the rare earth metals that are essential for building batteries and computers and cell phones and all kinds of technology that we depend on. If any of these were not available on planet earth, it would completely stunt our ability to be able to advance in technology. But how is it possible that we even have access to these elements? Because a lot of these elements are engulfed in the crust of the earth, they're engulfed in rocks and sediment. It just happens that water, another property that it has, it's a universal solvent. And it's because of this property that water can dissolve more substances than any other liquid. This is absolutely essential to every living thing on this planet. It means that wherever water goes, either through the air, the ground, or through our bodies, it takes along valuable chemicals, minerals, sediments, nutrients, and as water is taken from the oceans and deposited onto land, it dissolves the minerals and elements that are essential for life. In Surah 2 verse 164, it reads, In the creation of the heavens and the earth and the alternation of the night and the day, the ships that roam the ocean for the benefit of the people, the water that God sends down from the sky, to revive dead land and to spread in it all kinds of creatures, the manipulation of the winds and the clouds that are placed between the sky and the earth, 
there are sufficient proofs for people who understand. These are properties of water that no one has any control over except God, Lord of the universe. Now, these properties were dictated at the moment of the Big Bang and just happened to work out in such a way for the benefit of life and specifically the human being. Water also has higher surface tension than most other liquids. This is because of the relatively high attraction of water molecules to each other through a web of hydrogen bonds. If it wasn't for this attractive nature of water to stick together, what would happen is the second the water goes into the soil, it would sink all the way outside of our reach. That this is a property of water that God has bestowed upon it, that it sits on the surface of the earth. In Surah 67 verse 30, it says, Say, what if your water sinks away? Who will provide you with pure water? Now, we look at the planet Earth and we think that, wow, there's such an abundance of water. But if you were to consider the total mass of water relative to the mass of the planet Earth, what you'll find is that it's only 0.02% of the total mass of planet Earth is water. And from that 0.02%, only 0.7% is palatable for us to drink, constituting fresh water. This is something that, again, most people, we take for granted. We forget that if it didn't have these properties of water, that they, it sits on top of the planet Earth, that it doesn't seep too low into the ground, that it has this attractive nature that it allows us to be able to access it. And if it was limited without evaporation, without the winds, without clouds, without uh, holding it into ice capsules, much of this water and the provisions that it provides would be inaccessible for us. We would literally be stuck as aquatic creatures never progressing to form human beings. In Surah 56, verse 68 through 70, it says, Have you noted the water you drink? Did you send it down from the clouds or did we? If we will, we can make it salty. You should be thankful. Consider that ocean water, when it evaporates, when it turns into cloud, it leaves the salt. What if that was not the case? All of a sudden, the, this tiny fragment of fresh water that we have to drink would not only be unpalatable, we wouldn't even be here to have this conversation. Additionally, water has other unique properties that, again, were dictated from the moment of the Big Bang. These are just the physical properties of its chemistry. Typically, when things warm up, they expand, and when they cool down, they contract. The same principle holds for water until the moment it freezes. This property alone allows life to flourish under the thick layer of ice in oceans and seas. This property also in conjunction with the low viscosity of water allows water to seep into rocks, little tiny cracks and crevices of rocks. And then when the water freezes, it splits the rock open, allowing us to access all the rich nutrients and sediments that are enclosed inside that rock. You look at what happens to places like the Grand Canyon that have a river flow through it. Over time, you're slowly taking that sediment that's locked up inside that rock and planting it all throughout the land in order to spawn life, in order to provide the ingredients necessary to build organic life on land. Or consider the Amazon rainforest that in addition to the water that is absolutely essential 
to create this environment, there's another factor at play. Phosphorus is an essential ingredient to help plants grow. Each year, the Amazon forest during the rain season, as the rain comes in, it washes the phosphorus off the topsoil, which is a huge disaster for the forest. But somehow, after the season, the phosphorus is restored, and scientists weren't sure how. They had no idea how was the phosphorus being restored. And it wasn't until they found the origins of the phosphorus being the Sahara Desert, which is thousands of miles away. Each year, roughly 182 million tons of dust is lifted from the Sahara, and as much of this falls into the Atlantic Ocean, roughly 30 million tons gets deposited in the Amazon forest. These are essential for the creation of the Amazon rainforest and also for the sustainability of life in the ocean. If you weighed all the living organisms in the ocean, 90% of that weight would be for microbes. Just because these microbes can't be seen does not mean that they are not important. These microbes are the mechanism by which the ecosystems in the ocean are absolutely essential in order to survive. Now, God told us all living things came from water. And if it wasn't for this property, we would not have any organic life, not only on land, but in sea. In Surah 56, verse 63 through 67, it says, Have you noted the crops you reap? Did you grow them or did we? If we will, we can turn it into hay. Then you will lament, we lost, we are deprived. If it wasn't for these properties of water, if it wasn't for the winds carrying this phosphorus, planting it inside the, the terrain, we would not have any plants. It wouldn't matter how hard the farmer works. If these physical properties were not into play, as far as water being the universal solvent, as far as the winds being able to deposit the nutrients from one side of the uh, planet to the other, we wouldn't have any crops. We wouldn't have any fruits or vegetation. These are all essential, again, for our mere existence, let alone our advancement. In Surah 45, verse 5, it says, Also the alternation of the night and the day, the provisions that God sends down from the sky to revive dead lands, and the manipulation of the winds, all these are proofs for people who understand. Or consider this. The Earth is the only planet in the entire solar system that has plate tectonics. The Earth has about seven plates that are independently fragmented on top of its crust. And as these plates shift and move, they form mountains. Now, God tells us in 2788, says, When you look at the mountains, you think that they are standing still, but they are moving like clouds. Such is the manufacture of God who perfected everything. He is fully cognizant of everything you do. So here the Quran is confirming that the mountains are shifting, they're moving, no different than the uh, clouds. The only thing is the time horizon and the pace of moving is different but they're sitting on molten lava on the crust of the earth. In Surah 15, verse 19, says, As for the earth, we constructed it and placed on it stabilizers, mountains, and we grew on it a perfect balance of everything. These mountains, they serve as pegs to hold these plates into uh, place. In addition, they allow the sediment, the minerals, these uh, nutrients that are deep inside the earth that are essential for life and for the advancement of life to come out 
via volcanoes to come out and be deposited on the upper portion of the crust where we can uh, access them. It continues in 1520, it says, We made it habitable for you and for creatures you do not provide for. There is nothing that we do not own infinite amounts thereof, but we send it down in precise measure. And we send the winds as pollinators and cause water to come down from the sky for you to drink. Otherwise, you could not keep it palatable. These mountains, uh, they're a big factor in the winds. They're a big factor in the uh, different climates we have on this planet that these are all perfectly constructed in perfect balance for us to see, again, whether we're appreciative or unappreciative. Or consider oxygen. You know, oxygen is absolutely essential for intelligent, warm-blooded life. To put this in perspective, an adult, full-grown adult, say 155 pounds, uses 14.5 liters of pure oxygen per hour. That's about 250 mils a minute. That's at a steady state. If you're exercising, this could go as high as 330 liters during exercise. So oxygen and carbon are both gases that are soluble in water. This allows aquatic life to survive, but more advanced life requires more energy, making terrestrial life better suited for obtaining more oxygen. Because obviously it's easier to take the oxygen out of air where the viscosity is lower than it is trying to extract oxygen out of water as do aquatic life. But consider that the atmosphere we're breathing, the air we're breathing, is only 21% oxygen. That there is no adverse effects of breathing in nitrogen, which is 78% of the air we breathe. That this doesn't have any uh, reactions, any offsetting. If anything, it actually benefits one another. Because what's interesting is oxygen is highly reactive. This is obvious by seeing a fire. Take a forest fire, for instance. What we're seeing is oxidation of oxygen. If we were to remove oxygen from the vicinity of a fire, the fire would instantly go out. But how is it possible that the slightest spark doesn't cause a massive fire knowing how combustible oxygen is? It's because in ambient temperatures, oxygen is not very reactive. And you can determine this by how difficult it is to, say, start a little fire. But once that fire ignites, it becomes obviously more challenging to put out the bigger it gets. But part of this offsetting, in addition to the natural properties of oxygen, nitrogen actually serves as a, a retardant from oxygen combusting. That this balance is perfect. And it's to the point where every percent increase of oxygen increases combustion by 70%. So currently our atmosphere has 21% oxygen. If we increase that by 1% to 22%, the likeliness of a fire igniting increases by 70%. And if we decrease it by 1%, reduce the oxygen in the atmosphere by 1% from 21% to 20%, all of a sudden it becomes 70% harder to ignite a fire that we have this perfect condition by which we can harness fire. In Surah 56, verse 71 through 74, it says, Have you noted the fire you ignite? Did you initiate its tree or did we? We rendered it a reminder and a useful tool for the users. You shall glorify the name of your Lord the Great. If it wasn't for our ability to harness fire, which is highly dependent on these environmental factors that are outside of our control, Mankind would not be able to have moved past the Stone Age. 
into the Bronze Age, harness iron and steel, be able to build skyscrapers, enter the Industrial Revolution, or the Computer Age. All these conditions had to be just right for this to have been able to transpire the way it did. And this is proof that the universe, that this earth was created for us to better ourselves. Because out of all the organisms that exist, that ever existed on this planet, the only ones who were able to harness fire and advance their culture, their technology, has been the human being. It's as if these conditions were predisposed for us to be able to harness this ability to be able to advance and progress. Now, it didn't have to be this way. You know, most planets probably don't have a sufficient atmosphere to be able to sustain life. But it's not just that we have an atmosphere. Out of the millions and millions of possible combinations of atmospheres, we end up having the one that is the most essential to be able to have not just life, but the advancement of life. If any of these factors were slightly off, tweaked, uh, all of a sudden, not only would we not be able to sustain life, but let's say, even if it's changed to the point that we reduce the amount of uh, oxygen, or we increase the amount of nitrogen, or we change some other factor, we would have consequences that would stunt our ability to be able to advance, to our ability to be able to, uh, uh, to grow in understanding that these conditions had to have been perfect, that oxygen's relative reactivity at ambient temperatures is a property of oxygen, that heat activates oxygen and becomes self-sustaining, the uptick of oxygen is unaffected by nitrogen in the air, that enough oxygen is in the air for aerobic metabolism, but not too much for spontaneous combustion, that nitrogen is stable in the presence of oxygen, that when we breathe, it doesn't cause adverse effects. And how do we get this oxygen? It comes from photosynthesis. Oxygen is produced through this process, and the process involves light energy from the sun to draw electrons and protons from water, oxidizing the water to oxygen, which is released back into the atmosphere. You see this symbiotic relationship. And in order to complete this process, plants also need CO2, carbon dioxide, which just happens to be the element we extract when we breathe. In a course of a day, the average human is going to uh, produce about two pounds of carbon dioxide. So the plants produce oxygen, we breathe it in, produce carbon dioxide that they use to basically produce more oxygen. So in order for this process to take place, again, you need light, but it's not just any light. Uh, photosynthesis requires a very, very precise, narrow band of light that falls in the visible spectrum. Now, light has an incredibly wide spectrum. On the long side of the spectrum, you have radio waves, which can be kilometers along. And then on the short end of the spectrum, you have gamma rays, which are one trillionth of a meter long. And the lower the uh, uh, wave, the higher the energy, and the longer the wave, the lower the energy. And between this spectrum of 10 to the 8th and 10 to the minus 16th, you have this thin band of about 50 nanometers where you have the visible light necessary to trigger photosynthesis. And that's it. Now, if we look at the sun, which obviously is the main source of light for us, what we find is that the majority of light that this is producing is a visible light in the spectrum that's necessary for photosynthesis. As if that's not interesting enough, 
this light has to traverse through the atmosphere. And it just happens that the atmosphere blocks the harmful gamma, X-ray, and UV rays and allows the visible light spectrum through, but then blocks much of the infrared which could heat up the Earth, making it unsustainable for life, but allows the radio waves which we use for telecommunication. Now, there is no reason to why it has to be this way, that all these factors come into play, that the atmosphere allows the visible spectrum inside in order to trigger photosynthesis, blocks the harmful radiation that can destroy organic material, but also allows the spectrum that's necessary for scientific advancement. This is absolutely mesmerizing. And again, it doesn't have to be this way. It just happens that the uh, proportions that God has designed for the atmosphere are perfectly designed for these benefits. And again, when we read Surah 15, verse 19, it says, As for the earth, we constructed it and placed on it stabilizers, mountains, and we grew on it a perfect balance of everything. This again informs us that God first created the conditions, the perfect balance, the conditions to produce the outcome He desired, and then He allowed the system to come into existence. And this actually answers a lot of the questions around evolution and uh, human beings that God first determined the end outcome and then put everything into motion for us to be able to transpire on this planet at the right time, at the right moment, where all these things are designed to service the human being. So what's the conclusion of all this? From all these coincidences, the only rational outcome is that we are not a byproduct of the universe, but the universe was created as a byproduct to service the human being. In Surah 45, verse 13, it reads, He committed in your service everything in the heavens and the earth, all from Him. These are proofs for people who reflect. God created the heavens and the earth to service the human being, to distinguish those who believe from those who disbelieve, to distinguish those who recognize God's proof from those who are heedless, to distinguish those who are appreciative from those who are unappreciative. God informs us that to think that we came here as a byproduct of the universe is actually a sign of disbelief. In Surah 38, verse 27, says, says, We did not create the heaven and the earth and everything between them in vain. Such is the thinking of those who disbelieve. Therefore, woe to those who disbelieve. They will suffer in hell. Arthur C. Clarke had a quote. It says, Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I recently heard a quote from Virginia Postrel, which stated, Any sufficiently familiar technology is indistinguishable from nature. God has loaded this universe with the most advanced technology, but because it has become so commonplace, many people fail to see it. And if we don't take heed and we don't realize and recognize these blessings that God has bestowed upon us with this information that we now have to be appreciative, then we would suffer the consequences of those who disbelieve. In Surah 10, verse 101, it says, Say, look at all the signs in the heavens and the earth. All the proofs and all the warnings can never help people who decide to disbelieve. In Surah 12, verse 105, it reads, So many proofs in the heavens and the earth are given to them, but they pass by them heedlessly. God willing, let's not make the mistake. Let's not forget 
about the conditions that God has bestowed upon us to service the human being, to allow us to grow in development and understanding, for us to draw closer to God. Because if we become heedless, if we become unappreciative, then we lose both this life and in the hereafter. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. If you guys want to follow along the verses of the Quran, please download the Quran Study app on the iOS app store or go to the cronstudyapp.com website. And if you like the podcast, please let other people know. Leave us a review. And until next time, peace and God bless.